0: Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest this week is producer Michael Beinhorn. But first, CD Baby has been sold. Yeah, if you're a client of CD Baby, then you should probably know that there's going to be some new owners. And the new owner is Downtown Music Holdings. Downtown Music Holdings is pretty big already. The company owns... Song Trust and Song Trust was something that CD Baby was already using to collect all of the royalties for their clients. So you might not know, but you're using parts of downtown publishing anyway. So what's included in the deal is a little bit more than CD Baby. There are a number of companies that Downtown Music is actually buying. They're buying the company called AVL, which owns Adrev, Dashgo, Sounddrop, and CD Baby, and they're buying them from Discmakers. You might not have known that Discmakers actually owned CD Baby. Now Downtown Music Holdings are actually going to buy Discmakers as well in a separate deal on the side. This entire deal was about two hundred million. The original founder and owner, Derek Sivers, who founded the company in 1997, sold it to Disc Makers for $22 million in 2008. So in 10 years, it went up by almost a factor of 10 in value. CD Baby's pretty successful. Last year, they collected about $100 million for their indie artist clients, and that's about one-sixth of the global revenue for indie artists. So they're actually doing a pretty good job for all you indie artists out there if you're signed to them. But just keep in mind that pretty soon there's going to be new corporate owners... And we'll see how this is actually going to affect how CD Baby is run, although I don't think it'll probably be that much different because Downtown Music Holdings, at least it's not a hedge fund or an outside financial broker of some type that doesn't know the music business. And of course, Downtown Music really does know it, so that's the good part. (laughs) If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at BobbyOwnerCircle.com. Don't forget about my online courses on mixing, production, branding, and music business success at Courses.com. Also, get an expert analysis and objective opinion on your songs and mixes as a member of my Hitmakers Club. Go to HitmakersClub.com to learn more. Now, what kind of audio interface are you using? Yeah, there's lots of different types, and I'm not talking about models or brands, I'm talking USB or Thunderbolt or Firewire, whatever. ProToolsExpert.com, the great website, wanted to know a little bit more about what everybody was using, so they did a really nice survey, And what they found was 55% of audio workstation users out there use a USB interface. 20% use a Thunderbolt interface. That's a lot higher than I thought it would be. About 12% use FireWire. 6% use DigiLink. DigiLink, of course, is an Avid design. 4% use PCI. Boy, that's pretty old and 2% use audio over IP, and I think that category is going to increase really fast in the future. Audio over IP, and that's basically audio over Ethernet. It's a little more complicated than that, but that's pretty much what it amounts to. That is going to really take the place of everything that we know in the studio. Already, it's made Giant strides in broadcast and sound reinforcement, and it's kind of like standard there, but we don't see it too much in the studio yet. But I predict that in the next couple of years, it's really going to take over, and cabling as we know it is probably going to go away. Now, one of the things that people don't understand about USB is the fact that it's on 10 billion devices worldwide. Yeah, that's billion with a B. 10 billion devices it was actually developed by intel the processor company intel actually gave it away they made it royalty free so every manufacturer would adopt it and adopt it they did one of the bad raps that USB gets is it's not powerful enough, especially in comparison to again, Thunderbolt and Firewire or whatever, but it's plenty powerful when it's all said and done, at least for 90% of the people that are out there using a digital audio workstation. You can get up to 40 tracks of 9624, and that's pretty powerful right there. Or you can get up to 80 and in some cases, there are some protocols that actually even push it a little bit more at 48K. So if you're contemplating an interface and you're looking at different devices and they have different connectors on them, don't shy away from USB necessarily because it's probably a whole lot cheaper and for sure it will work pretty well in most applications. Now if you're a high-end pro, it's obviously not going to be what you want, but you know if you're in a home studio and you're not recording many things at the same time, that's probably a good way to go. My guest today is producer Michael Beinhorn, who's been on the show a couple times before actually. He's produced a wide range of artists, including Herbie Hancock, The Red Hot Chili Peppers, Ozzy Osbourne, Aerosmith, and Soundgarden. He's also the author of the book, Unlocking Creativity, and he's an outspoken advocate of the importance of artistic development and pre-production within the creative process. To that end, Michael has begun consulting with artists specifically about their pre-production. In the interview, we talked talked about why pre-production is so important, how it can be done remotely, the psychology of production, and much, much more. I spoke with Michael via Skype from his home in downtown Los Angeles. You were telling me that you have a new business, and it's very unique because I've never heard of anybody else with a business that's like this. So you're uh, in the post-production business,
1: right? I'm sorry. You're in the pre-production business. Well, there's, there's some of that, too. Uh, it's kind of... I. I... At this point, I think we're talking about everything that enca- everything encapsulating production that doesn't actually pertain to going right into a recording studio and recording stuff. <laughs> and even a couple of things that can happen around the perimeter of that.
0: Well, that sounds like pre-production to me.
1: It is. But actually, uh, what happens after, or I should say what happens during a project, like you know, post-production stuff, analysis of, of recordings that people have done, executive production, which obviously can happen before, during, and to some extent after, uh, you know, it, it, it winds up being various facets of consulting.
0: Yeah, I get it. Okay. So that being
1: said, what's the process then? How do you start? Um, well, the way it goes is someone will send me their music. <laughs> That's really <laughs> all it takes. It's simple, right? You know, and I have a chance to sit, listen to it. And I do a very detailed analysis of what, not specifically what's good about it. You know, I mean, you can find any number of people who are going to tell you, oh, this song's great, blah, 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 blah. And here's why and blah, 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 blah. That's not going to help anyone out at all. My job is to find out everything that's not working in a piece of music and by everything I mean like going as far as I possibly can into a song forensically just to break things down you know to find out elements that are rubbing against one another elements that aren't being supportive to what is usually the the, the one thing that a listener is going to focus on which in the case of a song is going to be a vocal And there are usually multiple things that can add up to destabilizing a person's work so that it doesn't come across the way the artist really wants it to. Although, of course, the artist is usually very is not able to have the same kind of objectivity about their own work. And this is where having an objective outside party really does help a great deal. This is, you know, this is what I'm doing. Once I've gotten everything straight on that, I'll wind up contacting them, basically giving them a list of stuff, breaking it down in a very detailed way, making sure that they're clear on what it is. And then, uh, there'll, there'll be some back and forth. Usually that involves video conferencing and another round of demoing. That generally is going to go on like three or four times that whole process. And we usually arrive at a place where the artist and I, and anyone else who's involved in the process goes, Okay, this is great. And then you have a record-ready song, and that's it.
0: How long does the process take?
1: It varies. (laughs) (laughs) It varies quite a bit, you know, because it depends on who the artist is, what their needs are, what they're really trying to do. In some cases, um, it can happen pretty fast. And in other cases, it can go on for months, (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know, because what you've done, in this in this situation, is you kind of open Pandora's box? Giving an artist a different perspective on their work can often cause them to kind of to to react to that in such an intense way that everything changes. Like down is up, up is down. Like you know, there'll be moments of of confusion, but for the most part, it's just a, a constant aha moment. Like it's amazing to see how. That kind of, I know I'm, I know you've seen this kind of thing happen yourself, where people are so blown away by having that alternate perspective that they have to go straight back to the drawing board and start mm-hmm. over with, with a lot of their stuff, which is always for the better as well, because they've got a completely different take on it now. And I, I've worked with one artist who um, we started over a year ago. And they figured that they were going to just be able to do this real fast and go into the studio and start recording. But once they began to, once they saw what the takeaways were, they were like, we can't do this. We can't rush this. You know, if we're going to make the record we really want to make, and we've invested so much into it now, we got to take a step back and we really got to get this right. And I was like, okay, it's, it's, your, it's your record. You got to do what you got to do.
0: So you've obviously refined this process over a long time and, and a lot of great projects that you've done. Let's talk about that. Your normal pre-production process, if you're producing
1: a record, what would that be? And how would it differ from what you're doing now? The main difference, first of all, is that this is remote and it's being done remotely to respect people's budgets because you know what the, the thing that I think costs most for a person who's involved in production is time. Um, And time becomes even it's compounded even further when you're dealing with people face to face, you know, when you're when you're in their presence, you're physically there. So I've had to try and remove that element from the process in order to make it properly time consumptive and also something that's going to be cost effective for artists. So that element being gone makes it much easier for me to work with people, you know, and, and respecting my time and i can still give them the same kind of attention that they would need beyond that there isn't a whole lot of difference actually there is because having compartmentalized one aspect of the recording process as a producer actually makes me able to focus even more intensely on that one thing which is an interesting side effect i mean i've been used to being in the same position on records that i've produced where I have, I have focused very intensely on, on, on the, on the people's music that I'm working on. But in this, in this particular instance, like it's just, it's kind of changed. It's, it's changed the, the game so much. Like I'm really focusing on this so intensely that I'm picking up stuff that I, 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 I don't know if I, <laughs> if I would have missed it before, but it's just refined my sense of doing this. And that's terrific.
0: As you say, there's a multitasking aspect involved when you're producing because you're thinking about the studio and the engineer and, and the budget and you're thinking about all sorts of other things besides the music. So if you take that away and I can see how you can just concentrate on one thing and get it really right.
1: Well, it always it always works. I mean, that's why I prefer producing a record with an engineer. I like I I, I like having a chain of command in that because also I can rely on the talents of someone who has got far greater capabilities in their field than I do. I don't fancy myself as being such a wonderful engineer. So having had the opportunity, you know, to work with such marvelous engineers, it's helped me make better records all the way around.
0: Well, let's go back to your pre-production process then. And what I'm trying to get at is how has that evolved from when you
1: first started as a producer to where it is now? Well, when I started out uh, as uh, producing records, I really was, I was working on projects that didn't rely on a whole lot of pre-production. A lot of them, the so- some, of the, some of them, the songs were really kind of being con- constructed in the process. In fact, the ones that I was working on, that's pretty much how they came together. So I, I, I kind of had a chance to oversee and compose at the same time. Really, the first time I had an opportunity to work like this was with the Red Hot Chili Peppers when I was given a bunch of demos, which I didn't think were particularly strong, but I knew there was something there. And I had never really been in that position before, so I had to adapt. And the adaptation process was all about going like, okay, I can see that there's a starting point here, but I, I want to get it over from the starting point to this place. How do I do it? You know, so necessity becomes the mother of invention. And I began to get very deep into their songs. Like, what am I missing? What is this not, What does what this need to have in order to get it from point A to point B? Like with the, with the Chili Peppers, I wasn't, I didn't, I didn't feel that the material that they were working on, or at least the way they orchestrated and arranged it was particularly good. But there was something really compelling about them as people. They had a very strong personality, and to me, that was the thing that I needed to pull out of them the most. So the question from that point became: How do I do it? How do, how does that happen through this, the the music, through the through through an orchestration, through an arrangement, through a song structure? How do you get those elements to come out? Which is an interesting problem to have to uh, manage, you know, and a, and a very worthwhile one as well. So that really that that just evolved over time. And that became part of how I worked on on records. That whole pre-production process became very, very detailed and a very important part of how I made all records. Even if, even in cases where people would pre- would present me with songs that were phenomenal, you know, there would still be an analytical aspect of that as well. I mean, one of the best things that you can do though, as someone who's assessing someone else's music, is go. I can't imagine anything that would make this better. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> It's, you know, it, it, it that, that has not happened very often, but it has happened. And it's, a, it's great. It's like, well, you guys, you did it. <laughs> yeah. On the
0: other hand, what I always found that was interesting was when you have concrete suggestions to an artist about maybe the form or the, you know, the general structure of a song and they come back and say, yeah, but this is the way I hear it. And they don't want to move, and at that point, it's well—you can't overlook their creativity because they feel something, they hear something. Can you overrule it? Is it a good idea? I mean, do you try to convince them? You know, there's that conundrum that you're going through there.
1: Um. Yeah, I, I, I have to say, I haven't, I haven't encountered that too frequently to the extent where someone would literally put, would literally sort of like plant the spikes and go like, I'm not moving. You know, I tend to like to lay groundwork before that kind of thing happens, just so that everyone knows that they can speak freely at the same, you know, and feel what they need to feel and express that. However, there does have to be a point there does have to be a chain of command on a recording. And it's not so much, it's not so much about there needs to be a boss. There needs to be a sense for everyone that there's a foundation that they can, because people, you know, we're, we're. I don't know, I wouldn't say we're, we're pack animals, but we are very social and we need to feel a certain amount of structure and comfort. And I don't think that there are a few places where that's more important than on a creative product, project where you're dealing with multiple personalities <laughs> who have multiple personalities themselves. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, so f- from that point, I, I like for there, for everyone's sake, for there to be a you know, a sense of hierarchy, which doesn't necessarily give me a veto power, nor should it, but it does give me the opportunity to sit with the artist and go wide and and get into their head and try and understand why they feel the way they feel. Just, you know, to go like, okay, you know, I can see how you feel about this. Let's talk about why. Let's see why this is, why, why you want this like this. And if this is actually if what you want is serving the song, I'd like you to convince me so I can eventually see your point of view and go, okay, I think he was right. You know, however, if I think you're wrong, I I will expect that you will consider my point of view and understand where it's coming from and how it pertains to the piece of music that we're discussing right now, because obviously the artist's vision. Is of paramount importance that's what we're trying to that's what we're trying to capture we're trying to capture his vision or her vision you know but the, but there is often a blurring of the lines are we talking about your vision or are we talking about your ego because if it's your ego we all need to take a look at this and you need to be honest about this you have to you need to be in in a state of acceptance of what this is that you're actually putting your foot down about, you know, is this, you know, is this real or is this a temper tantrum? Um, and we, and the other reason that, that it's important to do this is because this record is final. This record is not going to be changed. Once it's been finished, this is going to be the end result. We're talking about something that could color the rest of your life. You know, you want to make the best possible decisions that you can usually you're going to find the best decisions when you're working with the group of people you trust in that group relying one person relying on their judgment especially when it's contrarian and it moves away from a whole bunch of other people on the project who are basically or probably all saying the same thing like you really ought to rethink this because that that's normally what happens when there is a choice like that it's it's imperative for the artist to be able to look at it but forcing them is not going to do is not going to do any good it's like you in the, at the end of the day you can't force anyone to do anything anyhow and and coercing is is possible but why would you do that it's it, it's ethically it's ethically wrong you know trying to convince someone through logic it's a different story it's harder work it takes more time but at the end result everyone comes out ahead the times that i've experienced that i've experienced this where it didn't work it was a situation with an artist where you know where the people that he was working with in his band had just given up on him <laughs> at that point and they were like and they're like he's going to do what he wants to do it clearly it had nothing to do with what was the best choice for for the piece of music it had everything to do with him wanting to be the right person the one who was right and most important the one who got his way
0: Now, see, you approach this more cerebrally than the majority of producers do. And I'm not saying that they don't come to the same conclusion or the same result as you, but I suspect that it happens faster your way because you've thought this through of exactly what you want and exactly how to get it. Again, having people come to your way of thinking by explaining the situation. And I don't think most producers, myself included, would go that way. So was this something natural, or is this something that that you developed over the years?
1: Um, I think it's something natural. I remember um, one of the first projects that I actually did on my own. Actually, the very first project that I did once I stopped being in a production team, uh, which is around 1984, uh, I was in a rehearsal studio with this artist, They played a couple songs. After one, one song in particular, I said, well, that just sucks. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> the mood in the room changed drastically. And my, my girlfriend at the time who was there looked at me like I had committed some unspeakable sin. And later she told me, like, how could you do that? Like, that was that was really stupid. And I thought about it and I was like, wow, I really don't know how to talk to people and I don't really know how to interact with them very well. And this is my job. <laughs> so I I set out over time trying to get a better grasp on how to interact with people in a creative setting knowing that if this is going to be my job and they're they're doing me the courtesy of paying me and putting my name on their record as someone who helped them make a lot of very important decisions the least I could do would be to respect that and to you know, if if I have to get into a confrontational situation, which ultimately ultimately these things can be, um, that I would give that that I would pay them the respect of providing them with logical reasons why my opinion mattered to them, and that they should take it seriously.
0: Now, all that being said, we're talking about situations where diplomacy is of the utmost, and that's a big part of the producer's job. That being said, also, what you're doing now takes an element of that away since you're not on site most of the time, and you're just giving your opinion, and it's up to them to sort it out to a certain degree.
1: Um, To some extent, yeah, that's true. They're also getting a very unvarnished, straightforward opinion. Uh, And I've, I've discovered that many people I'm working with, in fact, none of them have ever received that kind of input before in their lives, so it's a very new thing for them, and that in itself gives them a lot of cause to consider it with a lot with um, as much um, severity as possible. But they 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 tend to take the kind of, that kind of opinion very seriously. I mean, honestly, what I've done, what my past, what my track record is, does not hurt. People are more likely to, to to consider the opinion of someone who's had a great deal of success and who is also working on the recording in this position. But that you know that that does give me leverage, you know, as does providing information in that way. Um, so there is a sense of of um, detachment, but it's not it's not what you would it, it's not what you would think. There's still there still is a connection there. And it's fun because I interact with people first through an email and then we have a video conference like this. You know, so we really, so th- there can be yeah, still through the digital medium. There's going to be, di- there's going to be separation no matter how you cut it. It can't not be, but it does bring back a certain, a degree of the personal touch to it. Not like being in a room, but. It creates it definitely it, it builds an extra bridge. How are you credited? Pre production. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That's a, that's a, I haven't I haven't come up with anything with anything new. It's pre production or executive production. There could be pre and post production on records. It really depends.
0: Okay, so I get the pre production and that's always been extremely valuable. There's no way around it. But also a good portion of what a producer does is both during recording and post recording, as you say, there's a lot of post-production decisions involved. So when do you get involved at that point? Is it right after the basic tracks, um, listening as recordings are going down? How frequently does that take place?
1: It varies. Uh, I've gotten involved on some projects where a minimal amount of recording had been done and the artist wanted input from that point. I've also gotten involved where most of the principal recording had been done and they just kind of wanted a, they wanted a, where am I type, uh, assessment? Like, you know, is this doing what it's supposed to be doing? What have I got in it and the artist being in a position where they could go back and change things at will being that the recording studio is generally digital now, and that it's so much easier to do that kind of thing and also being involved in making very important decisions in in mix. You know, I, I was presented with one song that actually needed some work done and it was in it was in mix downstage and we had to deal with editing as well as mix uh, elements of the mix. And, you know, it, it really depends on the project and, and what the artist requires.
0: Okay, let's go back to the pre-production for a little bit. Is there one thing that... Always seems to need more work than the others. Is there something that sticks out to you that this is this always comes up no matter what at this point in pre-production?
1: With pre-production, the two most important elements that I tend to deal with are um, arrangement, structural, and orchestration. And it's interesting because sometimes those things are determined by a person's profi- skill, you know, proficiency level. I find that if that if artists are very, very technically skilled in many cases, if that's ever a facet of the music that they make, sometimes if they haven't had any kind of oversight, they'll just go overboard (laughs) with all kinds of stuff, with just parts and parts and parts, not realizing that what they're doing is taking away from the top line, which is where you want to focus the attention if you're talking about a song. I mean, we're making homophonic music. That basically where the top line is generally the thing that you're focusing on the most, the melody, everything else is supportive in that. Even mm. if some of the instrumentation is more interesting to listen to than the voice, it still has to be supportive. But a lot of people don't think like this because they're thinking based on their skill level mm. or they, they're thinking based on what they like to do with their instrument. They're not thinking compositionally. So that, that, that is often an issue. Um, structural elements can be issues as well. Um, aspects of arrangement, dynamics is all, almost always a problem. I think that people confuse the idea of excitement in a piece of music with all the time. <laughs> yeah, like everything up here, constantly, no breaks, no breath, no moment for no, no moment for an, a listener to catch his or her breath, and kind of even have a split second to take stock on what's already happened. No setup to go to the next place. Transitions, eh, you know. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It's, you know, there are so many things, and they tend to be really small details that are easily overlooked. But cumulatively, in a piece of song that has a bunch of, in in a piece of music that has a bunch of stuff like this, the effect can be pretty devastating to, uh, you know, to, to have maintaining an attention span.
0: Now, there are two ways to perform dynamically on a record. And one way, of course, is playing with more or less intensity, which is the traditional way to do it, if you're going to do it well. And then the second way is adding and subtracting instruments, keeping each one at a relatively constant dynamic level, but just adding more or less. And I suppose there are situations for both of those, but what do you find is, is predominant for you?
1: That's dependent on the project. Um, it's dependent on the artist. It's also dependent on the parts themselves. Mm-hmm. It depends on the tone that the instrument requires. Sometimes a quiet section will actually sound better if... A particular part is played with more emphasis because it may bring out a certain tonality of the instrument that's more compelling. I also have enjoyed putting very, very heavy rhythm, doing very heavy rhythm sections, and then tracking everything else on top of those, ad- adding overdubs that are much more subdued uh, because the contrast can be really, really wonderful. You know, the thing is that there's so many different things that you can do with dynamics. It's it's just so wonderful to play with dynamics and envision dynamics as kind of, as part of the pathway that you give to a listener to kind of, you know, so that, so that they'll stay with you, that they'll, that they'll keep with you because the dynamics can make a song so much more interesting and so much more fun to listen to. They can be part of your payoff to get you to the surprise when everything kicks in, you know, which you probably know is coming, but if, if it's set up and if it's established for you even more that it's coming, And you're preparing for it the expectation is so wonderful Mm. and then you know so when you get that payoff it makes it that much more more exciting but
0: now if we look at the pop songs of today and I know that's not necessarily what you're talking about working on but maybe it is maybe I'm being presumptive here the song structure of today's songs has changed completely where there are fewer setups in fact Uh, you won't find bridges. There's certainly no fade ins, fade outs, things like that gets the chorus very quickly rather than a a long intro, things like that. So for someone to stay, if you had an artist that would say, "I I want to sound as contemporary as possible, then that changes the approach to traditional song structure as well.
1: Um, if you want to go down that route production wise, yeah, it will. If you don't want to go down that route production wise, and still make something contemporary, you can do whatever you want. To me, obviously, the the construct of popular music today, as you're saying, is considerably different. I think the, the emphasis is making sure that every single section has a hook in it. Mm, yeah. You know, that there's a melodic part, whereas before, music was always about tension and release. So there were parts that weren't necessarily hooky, that didn't necessarily have a payoff in them but we're le- acting as bridge pieces that would lead you from one part to the other. The power of the song in that case is how adept the art, the uh, composer is at making you want to hang with the song and get to the next point, you know, but it's a much different uh, approach than hook, hook, hook type thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. M- my interpretation <laughs> or analogy, I guess, of listening to music where every section is a hook, is that it's kind of reminiscent of eating too much sugar. You know, it tastes really good. It gives you that rush. But then afterwards, once you've had too much of it, you start to feel kind of sick and like, ugh. To me, it's the same thing that that happens when you're listening to music where you've got a whole bunch of hooks back to back. There's no tension there's no release. It's all, it's just nonstop, give, 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 you know, there's no, um, yeah, there's no expectation. There's no kind of like, there's, there are no peaks and valleys to it.
0: Well, that being said, there are peaks and valleys. Well, I don't know if you'd call them traditional peaks and valleys because, you know, if we go back and we look at the, maybe the songs that we love from years and decades past, we would have peaks and valleys, but the, peaks would be kind of at different levels as would the valleys be. And there would be a certain point in the song where it would be the absolute peak, where, where it would be the payoff. And, uh. and now, whenever I, I analyze a song, what I find is that the peaks, there are certainly peaks and valleys, but they're the same. So in other words, everything is, is only this loud. And then the, the valleys go the same. And after a while you go, well, at least I do, I can't put my arms around where the
1: peak of the song is, where the payoff is so much. Well, this is exactly what I'm saying. You've you've essentially taken a series of events that could be made distinct from another and you've homogenized them. Mm. You've homogenized them within three to four minutes. There, thereby, Thereby taking anything that could be engaging about it, that makes you want to follow along with it, and rendering it kind of unexciting, mm-hmm. in in in, in, a, in a very human way though. It's a different kind of excitement. Like there's more of a, it's more of an adrenaline rush now because it's obviously hyped. It's it's terribly hyped up. Um, obviously, there's a a major controversy going on about like how much compression and and limiting post production gets applied to recordings. You know. But also, we're not just talking about the actual volume dynamics of a song. We're also talking about instrumentation dynamics as well. Right. Parts come in, way parts develop from one section to another. You know, that's also an aspect of what keeps you locked into a piece of music, Listen to, listening to things develop. You know, now I think that there's more of a linear process. It kind of happens, in, it's going to happen in stages, if they're even dynamics, you know, stage one, stage two, stage three. You know, and it's kind of like a step in terms of more of something that's a lot, that's more organic. You know, not being able to find, not being able to be sure about where the actual emotional peak in a piece of music is, that's dangerous. Yeah, it is. It's dangerous because you really ultimately don't know what the song is trying to say to you. Mm -hmm. That means that ultimately the song doesn't really have a whole lot of meaning. You know, you can't, you can't really connect with it. And at the end of the day, being able to connect with a piece of music is one of its most important aspects.
0: You know, you mentioned something before we were talking about your development as a producer and, and in pre-production. And you mentioned when you first started as part of a team where you were basically creating the song as you went along. And that's sort of the way it is now when you think about it in yeah. terms of the way music is where the, the producer is the composer, except... For the top line for the most part and let's interchange it as we need so yeah what comes around goes around to a certain degree i guess huh
1: yeah it's definitely it, it it's definitely different uh it, it it has um it 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 definitely changed over time for me i did start out with those with those records i mean i i keep going back to hancock's to, to their Herbie Hancock record that I did because that's a perfect example of something, but it's, it's interesting because that was more of a, um, it was actually kind of a conceptual piece at its, at the, um, at its, um, onset. It was, we were trying to envision what Herbie would have done if he'd been, if he'd stayed being this sort of jazz rock luminary and hadn't gone off and made a whole bunch of R&B records, and all of a sudden came face to face with this fledgling music form of hip hop. You know what would that, what would that combination, that pairing look like? So we actually were coming at it from kind of from a very conceptual place. It wasn't actually the song, that song, and nothing that we did was really designed to be commercial. It wasn't designed for people to kind of like it you know so it had a different it had a completely different meaning even though it was built in the same way that we're talking about producers will do now they'll they'll just build the song up as they're going it actually had its its origins its foundation was elsewhere
0: you know you just mentioned something that something popped in my head here so when you first were going in the music business forgive me if i got this wrong but i don't think i do that was right in the beginnings of hip hop as well.
1: How much did hip hop influence you? I was exposed to hip hop around um, 1981 initially, 81 or 82. It had been an underground music form for a few years prior. I think it really started to be a thing in the you know early mid 70s. You know where people had where there were you know MCs. Uh, you know, and that, that whole thing came from Jamaica uh, because that was a that was part of the that was part of the culture, and it slowly started to filter down, you know, from the Bronx into Brooklyn and you know Lower Manhattan, and that's how that's you know where we caught wind of it. And once, yeah, once we came, once once we kind of got involved with it, or once we started hearing it, it just it was life changing. It really was. It was a very important part of everything that we did and it was amazing because it, it 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 was it was this music form that had been informed by lots of other music that came before stuff that we were also listening to but it kind of took all that stuff and it just metamorph like it, it it almost like it it was like it, it was a filter that stuff it, the stuff would get sucked into and it would spit this whole new type of music out the other end it had drum machines and synthesizers and things like that, and really took advantage of a lot of the newest technology. And but it was being used on on to, to make records that people hadn't really heard before. You know, also in 1981, that was a very very important year for hip hop and for dance music and everything else. You know, numbers by Kraftwerk, which is one of the seminal pieces of music. Um, that informed hip hop music, electronica, you know, everything came out. So did The Message by Grandmaster Flash, Buffalo Gals by um, Malcolm Claren, which is kind of a novelty record. But at the same time, people, some people think that's the beginning of like commercial hip hop and The Magnificent Seven by The Clash which is a rock record that was being played on R and B stations, which at that time was like, it just completely flipped people out. No one knew what to make of it. You know, so things were changing really fast and we were just watching culture, the music culture, the art culture just get transformed and and converted into something brand new right in front of our faces. And yet hip hop was very, very important back then.
0: But yes, I can't say, that I can hear that so much in the projects that you've done. No, I'm saying that in a positive light, actually, because unlike some producers, composers, artists, whatever, where, you know, you can always feel exactly where they're from and and they put their stamp on it, you're pretty transparent with that as far as as I can see because it would be easy
1: not to, given your background. Well, I think that you can... You can re- you can incorporate your influences directly or you can incorporate them indirectly. To me, making music ha- always had an element of, con- of concept in it. And to this day, that's kind of how my mind works. You know, when I would produce a rock record, I wasn't thinking in terms of trying to make a rock record. The mistakes, I think the times that anything I've worked on didn't turn out the way I would have liked it to is when I started to go, oh, I'm a rock producer. I began to kind of envision myself in that role. To me, producing records was just sort of, it, it was something other. It wasn't something that was genre-based to me. It was, it's, it, it's a function that transcends genre. So if I'm making a Soundgarden record, let's say, I'm not thinking of trying to compete with the rock records of the day. Um, I just heard, I just started listening to techno music at that point. So my influence for that record was techno. <laughs> <laughs> you can't you can't hear it. You can't because there's no sense. Yeah. But if you listen to the instrument tones, there's something hyper real about them. They, you know, and that's very and that's very intentionally so. My my focus was on the tonality of instruments and how how I could create a mass of sounds that, that were extremely big, that would, that were, that were very large sonically, but didn't interfere with one another, that that it occupied their own space and were able to establish their own personalities. Each individual, one of them, including each instrument in the drum kit as well so that you could make them all out, but they also work together interdependently.
0: Mm. I'm going to have to go back and listen.
1: Yeah. If you, it, it If you hear it it's fine if you don't hear it it's fine it's you know but it was that that aspect of it was is very intentional trying to make a rock record i mean the band were rock already you know what am i going to do make them bluegrass (laughs) (laughs) you know they're they're a rock band already it's it's just how you temper it like what do you do with that you know how do you extend the range how do you make it more interesting more unusual add an interest, add a sonic footprint to it that may not have been there that that normally other people wouldn't have thought of. To me, that's part of what makes this this job, this work so much fun and so so much of an exploration, you know, the play in it. yeah.
0: How do people get in touch with you that would like to hire you? My
1: website my, through my website, michaelbeinhorn dot com.
0: You can find out more about Michael and his pre-production service at michaelbeinhorn.com. It's all one word, Michael Beinhorn, B-E-I-N-H-O-R-N. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at BobbyOInnerCircle.com. To listen to episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to BobbyOsinski.com, select the podcast tab, or go to BobbyOInnerCircle.com, or find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Play, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, and now,